All right, well, if you found your place in 1 Corinthians 6, let's stand in honor of God's Word. I'm going to pick up in the, the second half of verse 13, uh, and then we'll, we'll just finish uh, chapter 6. So the body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord, and the Lord for the body. And God raised the Lord and will also raise us up by his power. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never. Or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? Or as it is written, the two will become one flesh. But he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. Flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. Lord, would you... Help us to do just that. And would you use our bodies even now, our, our ears, our eyes, our hearts, our minds to glorify you uh, so that we would know and appreciate and express more and more the, uh, our, our wonder and our love and our admiration for you, uh, for loving us and for saving us and for giving us a hope and a future. In your name we pray, amen. Please be seated. So, uh, this, this little statement, this you are statement at the end of verse 19 where Paul says, you are not your own, that is a bold statement. That, that is a, um, an attention-getting statement in, in our culture and our community because everybody that we run into basically in the world uh, believes they're autonomous. We like to think of ourselves as autonomous when we forget who we are in light of the gospel. And we think, you know, nobody's got a right to tell me what to do. Nobody should really be telling me what to do with my body. You know, my body's mine and I'm free to make my own choices. And you can, you know, imagine that conversation going all kinds of different places about, you know, what I'm free to do with my body. But here, um, Paul is saying something radically different than what our culture says. You're not your own and your body does not belong to you. And furthermore, your body has a purpose and it's to, to glorify God. So let's Let's use that statement, you are not your own, and, and look at some of the implications. Paul says your body is meant for the Lord. He says your body is joined to Christ. It's a member of Christ. And he says that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit. So we're, we're going to look at those categories all under this, um, you know, trying to understand more what it means that you are not your own and, and how we're going to discover it. That's, that's fantastically good news. It's unbelievably good news that we are not our own, contrary to kind of how the world might, might receive that. So uh, let's, let's jump in at verse 13 and how Paul's saying that the body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. And God raised the Lord and will also raise us up by his power. So first thing you see under this, you know, concept that, that we're not our own is that our body is meant for the Lord. It belongs to him. It's, it's intended for him. Um, and, and this is going to, Paul's going to use, you know, some specific application here regarding sexual immorality. So buckle up. 
We're going to talk about sex. We're going to talk about sexual immorality. But I hope we're going to do it in a way that is not the sort of conventional, sometimes like this prudish sense that, that people get when, when church people start talking about sexual pleasure, sexual you know, immorality, like this judgy, hating kind of posture that the church typically you know, has taken in the past. So what we want to do is avoid that stereotypical approach to sexual ethics, which sort of it, it, it tries to make sure that the church knows all about the ungodly ways these ungodly people are behaving with their ungodly bodies, you know, blah, blah, blah. Um, and so, you know, God's people aren't supposed to do any of that stuff. Uh, and if you're really, really holy, and if you're really, really serious about religion, you shouldn't be thinking about sex or even want sex. Like, that's the impression you get sometimes. Maybe you grew up in a tradition like this, and maybe this was your kind of your exposure to, to the church and, you know, sex. And based on this attitude, you, you kind of get this impression that people were reading verse 13. If you look at verse 13 again, you, think, you might think that Paul had written that the body is not meant for sex. But that's not what Paul says. What Paul is saying is that the body is not meant for sexual immorality. Um, so that, that approach to this topic has, you know, just done some damage. It's failed to engage the culture. And, and more than that, it's actually failed to compel Christians toward, toward any, you know, real holiness, any real heartfelt holiness. I mean, you can tell people to knock it off and stop it, you know, until you're blue in the face and you might get some people to comply, but they're not going to do it joyfully. Like, how do we have a joyful uh, appreciation for sexual holiness and sexual beauty? Uh, how do we keep it pure in a way that everybody's giving thanks, you know, and celebrating God's goodness to us instead of just feeling judged and feeling like this is something taboo we shouldn't talk about, we shouldn't, shouldn't even think about. Now, all right, so we do want to address the fact that, that our bodies are the locus for a lot of brokenness, sexual brokenness. A lot of the expression of sin that exists in the world happens in our bodies. And, and earlier in chapter 1 of Romans, Paul was pointing out this very same thing. He says, therefore, you know, in light of sort of this holistic worldwide rejection of the grace of God, Therefore, God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who, who is blessed forever, right? And so, you know, you, you take that verse and verses like it and people will run with that and just, you know, kind of focus on the negative, focus on the sexual immorality, focus on you know, how bad people are uh, in dishonoring uh, their bodies and so on. I get it. But that approach fails because it depicts sex itself as bad. But sex is not bad. Sex itself is good. It's an invention of God. It's a gift from God to us. The problem is the context. It's the context that makes the difference between sexual beauty and sexual immorality has everything to do with the context. Sexual sin vandalizes this good, this, this glorious gift. God designed our bodies and he designed sex to be pleasurable. It's a good thing. And so we need to be faithful to warn against sexual immorality, but we also have to make a case for the goodness of sex. And, and I, um, <laughs> I'm going to read you this uh, excerpt. Uh, from Ben Patterson, he contributed to a book with this amazing title. How's this for a, a Christian book title? 
sex and the supremacy of God. Like, that's pretty good, right? Uh, ben Patterson writes, with all of this uh, sexual obsession in our culture, one is tempted to downplay the pleasures and the goodness of sex, right? And to say that they are overrated. And, and then this next sentence he puts in italics, and I do think it's important for us to hear. But that might do the devil's will as much as the obsession itself. Downplaying the pleasures and the goodness of sex might do the devil's work just as much as the obsession itself. Why? And he explains. This, is, this will blow your mind if you've never thought of this. And we could spend the whole sermon just on this, but we're going to keep moving on. But I just want you, you got to hear this. Pleasure is God's idea. Pleasure is God's invention. And God is the devil's enemy. The devil actually hates pleasure. We've gotten it all the way around. The world has totally flipped that and believed the lie that the devil is all about our pleasure and God is all about us being stoic. That's a lie. That's false. God invented our bodies. He gave us our bodies. He gave us the nerve endings and the sensitivity and the pleasure zones and all of that. It's his invention. And all Satan can do, he can't invent anything. He can't create anything. Do you know that? Satan doesn't create. All he can do is corrupt. And, and Satan is, is God's enemy. And, and what the devil is doing, he actually hates pleasure and he hates the God of pleasure, but he will use pleasure if it gets to his appointed ends, which is to destroy us. This is a really, really important thing, that, but we're going to move on. But just, I need you to hear that. So the other, so that's the one mistake is we end up kind of talking about sexual immorality and, and we, we put it, you know, focus on the negative and we forget the, the positive of what sex is. It's God's good invention, his blessing, and his, his gift to us. The other thing that's a little, you know, kind of backing up even further, more macro vision, is we forget to grasp the spectacular vision that God has for our bodies. That, that he has, and especially when it comes to what's awaiting for us. What's going to happen to our bodies? We look at our bodies, and we're not really sure what we think of our bodies. We're we don't know how we feel. Actually, we do know how we feel. We struggle. Can, I, I, want one, I want you to name one part of your body that you think is great. Right? Like, uh, I, I can't think of it. Name five parts of your body that you hate. Oh, that's easy, you know, and you, and you rattle them off. Like supermodels who are paid thousands of dollars, millions of dollars, you know, to, to exhibit their bodies before a watching world, stand in front of a mirror, and all they can pick out are their flaws. We hate our bodies. God loves your body. And he has a, a purpose and a destiny for our bodies that is indescribably glorious. Paul says that we're going to be raised, right? Look at, look at uh, verse 14. God raised the Lord and will also raise us up by his power, you know, to, to completely eradicate all of our insecurity about body image, all of the body shaming. Our bodies are destined for this unspeakable glory. And we're to give thanks for God's gracious gift of a body. 
And we're to look at our bodies and, and recognize, okay, yeah, there's brokenness and there's, you know, there's stuff and there's, you know, sin affects our bodies. But that's not the end of the story. The end of the story is something unbelievably spectacular. The resurrection will have the final word on the battle of our bodies. And we are to give thanks for his covenant oath to repair and restore our bodies into something shimmering and stunning in eternity. You won't believe what we will look like. You won't believe what others will look like. You know, you, we can't even conceive of this. So the way that we regard our bodies now and the bodies of others ought to express an anticipation of this destiny. Like we don't just look at people and, and, and see them just for what they are. We want to see them for, for who they are in the future. Um, in, in the Philippians letter, Paul puts it this way. Our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body, like we wrestle with these bags of bones, our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. That vision and revelation, you know, the Lord and all of his glory, his, his bodily glory, yeah, that's what's waiting. That's what you and I will be like too. So um, Lauren Winter wrote a book uh, 15 or so years ago, really, really helpful book called Real Sex. She writes that bodies are central to the Christian story. They're not ancillary. The kingdom of God is transmitted through Jesus' body and is sustained in Christ's body, the church. And bodies are who we are and where we live. And they are not just things that God created us with, but means of knowing him and abiding with him. Our bodies are so central and so good. And so let's focus on the goodness of our bodies. How does God want us to use our good bodies for his glory? And, and Paul goes on. So our, our you know, body is meant for the Lord and our body is a member of Christ, he says in verse 15. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Don't forget this, right? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never. Come on, that's silly. Or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? Like it's written, the two will become one flesh. But he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. So flee from sexual immorality. Um, you, you get this, you've heard this at probably every wedding you've been to because Paul says the same thing about husbands and wives. He tells um, you know, the husbands to love their wives as Christ loved the church. Husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife will love himself and no one ever hated his own flesh but nourishes and cherishes it just as Christ does the church because we are members of his body. So there's this spiritual reality where our physical bodies are joined to Christ's body. We are his members. We're, we are connected to him. We're not supposed to take what is joined to Jesus and then join it to something sexually immoral, like a prostitute. So Paul's argument against this unholy uh, sexuality kind of reminds me of uh, Mr. Potato Head. You remember Mr. Potato Head? And you've got the potato, and you've got all the appendages, the arms, and the ears, and the eyes, and the nose, and the hat, and all that. And so what, what Paul is saying is that we're not to take 
Well, when Mr. Potato Head, you, you can take the arm and you can put it where the arms go and you can put the feet where the feet go and the ears where the ears go and that's great. But what's really fun is to take the arm and stick it, you know, on top of the head and then you take the foot and stick it outside of the ear and, and you know, and then you've got a Mr. Potato Head monster and it's lots of fun, but it, it ain't right, you know? And that's what Paul is saying here. It's fun, it feels good, but it ain't right to take what's connected to Jesus and, you know, join it to something that's sexually immoral. Here's a better vision. Compare that Mr. Potato Head monster, you know, with everything out of place, joined in the wrong places improperly. It's fun, but wrong. Compare that with what's on the front of your bulletin. This, this sculpture by Auguste Rodin called The Cathedral. Uh, you, if you don't know who Rodin is, remember that sculpture, The Thinker, this guy who's doing this? That's Rodin. And he did all of these sculptures basically you know, using human anatomy. Rodin was kind of a, a, an interesting, strange person, but he got this right. Um, this sculpture of two hands, uh, it's, it's, it's beautiful, it's graceful, it's elegant, but it's two hands. That's all it is, just two hands. And you might think, well, okay, that's just one person's hands, but it's not. It's, it's two, two right hands. So it's two different people's hands that are just about to embrace. And they're just delicately touching. They're only touching at one place. The middle finger of one person's right hand is touching the index finger of the other person's right hand. These are two lovers. And there's all this anticipation as, as these two hands are touching tenderly and they're about to become one. The two are about to become one. It's a picture of love. It's a picture of intimacy. It's this beautiful sculpture, you know, right? And, it's, and that's what Paul's appealing to here. Even in, this, um, in, in the negative example of the you know, sexual immorality and being joined to this prostitute, he's saying, don't you know that when two people come together, the two become one? And, and that's a direct allusion to Genesis 2. God, God makes Adam and Eve and uh, bless, blesses Adam with Eve and says, therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And so God's design uh, sex to become this coming together of a husband and a wife. And as these two become one flesh, like they literally become members of one another. The husband becomes a part of her. She becomes a part of him. And they are two people who then become one flesh, and this joining together is this bodily, physical parable of this spiritual union that we have with Jesus. Jesus is one with his bride, the church. Furthermore, there's the Trinity, the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Their unity, three in one, so connected, so close, so intimate, that where does one begin, where does the other end? There's a mystery there. But this is what we're being invited into. This is this, this holy parable that sex tells. And so if it's that holy and if it's that beautiful, don't vandalize it. Don't drag it through the mud. We have to treat it in a holy way. Um, Rodin's sculpture song us something else that Paul's about to get into. That space, or, well, anyway, uh, that space between the two hands, like 
he put the hands, uh, they're standing up, right? I mean, they're, they're vertical. They could have been horizontal. They could have been, you know, sideways or whatever, but they're vertical. And what they're doing, the, the name of the sculpture is the hint. It's the cathedral. And they're a picture of a Gothic cathedral with the vaulted ceiling, the space in between the two hands where the Spirit dwells. It's creating that space. It's, it's, and, and, and Kyle did a marvelous job last week. I thought it was his best sermon he's preached. Uh, from chapter 3, talking about how we, the plural church, um, in, in verse 16, chapter 3, Paul says, do you not know that you, plural, but grammatically, like we would say y'all, y'all are God's temple and God's spirit dwells in you. You are that temple. But now Paul's addressing individuals. Verse 13, do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you whom you have from God? God's Spirit dwells between two Christians and, and, a, and a congregation of Christians in that space. That's His temple. But He also dwells in the individual Christian, in our bodies. We become His temple, His tabernacle, His sanctuary. Each one of us has the Holy Spirit dwelling in us. Each one of us uh, belongs to God in that sense. So, you know, if, um, if you go to somebody's house, uh, you go to the place where they live. And, and if, you know, maybe it's their house, maybe it's their apartment, maybe it's their dorm room or whatever, but if you're somebody's guest and you go to their house, you're going to the place where they live and they call the shots, right? It's their place. How weird would it be? How, how rude would it be to go into somebody's house and go, hey, nice place. Yeah, I really, I really like what you, you know, but... Um, I don't like that painting right there. I'm, gonna, I'm just going to take this and I'm going to move it over here. And these portraits over here, they don't belong here. They're going to look so much better over here. And uh, your, your living room is a disaster. The feng shui is just a mess. So I'm going to move this chair over here and help me with this couch. You know? And you just start like rearranging the whole place. Who, the, who do you think you are? You don't live there. That's not your, it's not your place. Whose house is it? It belongs to whoever lives there. Guess what? Your body is the Holy Spirit's house. The Holy Spirit lives in you. The Holy Spirit owns you. The Holy Spirit gets to call the shots. The Holy Spirit, you know, that, that's what leads Paul to say in verse 19, you're not your own. You're the temple of the Holy Spirit. You belong to the Holy Spirit. You're not your own. For you were bought with a price. So, so glorify God in your body. Um, I was going to talk about we belong to our creator. That's in your outline. No time today. We're going to move on. We belong to our redeemer. You were bought with a price. So look, here's what happens. Everybody that we know, and including ourselves, there, there are ways and, and times when we are looking for salvation with our bodies. It's actually what leads us into sexual sin. That, that you know, image, that, that wink, uh, that, you know, illicit whatever is promising us something. It's promising us some kind of blessing, some kind of pleasure, some kind of relief, some kind of 
alleviation from the curse, right? That's a salvation of sorts. We're looking for salvation with our bodies. But we need salvation from our bodies, from the things that we've done with our bodies. Uh, This is why Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5, we all must appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body. And there's nobody here who's innocent. We've all done stuff in the body that we need saving from. We need forgiveness from. We we need to look outside of our bodies for that grace and for that kindness and for that, you know, that cleanness. And that's exactly what Jesus performed for us and accomplished for us. Uh, Peter says it well. Jesus himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness by his wounds. You have been healed. So what Jesus did was he took his body. He didn't just spiritually wipe the slate clean. He didn't just take the dry erase board in heaven and say, okay, you're forgiven. No, he inhabited a body. He took on our flesh just like we are. And in his body on the cross, he bore our sins, our bodily sins. So let's go back to the the example that Paul used. And he's talking about uh, being joined to a prostitute. Like I just... That creeps me out, the you know, idea of paying for sex somebody with a stranger, but people do it. There's all kinds of other sexual immorality that you know, is out there too, but Paul uses the example of a prostitute. And, and, and I want to be clear here. We're not supposed to take our members, which are joined to Christ, and unite them to something that's sexually immoral. But here's how the gospel works. God takes the sexually immoral things. God takes sexually immoral people and joins them to Christ and beautifies them and purifies them, makes them holy, makes them whole. There's nobody in here who's not affected by sexual immorality. But some of you have been affected far more than others. It's happened to you or you've inflicted it on others. Ways we've used our bodies and the ways we've used other people's bodies that we're ashamed of and that we're we're guilty of. But the gospel makes it very, very clear that Jesus gave his body so that when we who are sexually immoral bodies are joined to his body, We're healed, we're saved, we're forgiven. He himself bore our sexual sins in his body on the cross so that all who trust in him, even the prostitute, no matter who you are, what you've done, how many times you've done it, can be clean, can be free, can be a new creation. You're not your own. And that's ridiculously good news. 
you were bought at a price. So honor God with your bodies. This is such incredibly good news that centuries ago, our fathers and our mothers, when they were trying to put together a synopsis of what do we believe, uh, what we call a catechism, you know, a teaching tool for what is the Christian faith all about? The Heidelberg Catechism begins with this question, what is your only comfort in life and in death? Like, at the end of the day, what are you leaning on? What are you standing on? What's going to propel you into eternity of of blessing? What's your foundation? And here's how it begins, that I am not my own. I belong body and soul, in life and in death, to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. He has fully paid for all my sins with his precious blood. He has set me free from the power of the devil. He preserves me. He loves me. And he makes me heartily willing and ready from now on to live for him. He makes Romans 12.1 make sense. Now, therefore, in view of God's mercy, I urge you, present your bodies as a living sacrifice. So how do we uh, just wrapping up here, here's some ideas about what it looks like to be heartily willing and ready from now on to live for him. What are some ways that we can do that? Paul's addressing sexual immorality in this passage, and we've, we've talked about that. We don't have time to go into all these things today, but I want to give you a list, and you can discuss these you know, in your home groups or you know, when you get home over lunch or whatever, but think about the implications. We are not our own. Our bodies do not belong to us. They belong to the Lord, and we are stewards of what he has given to us, these good, beautiful, precious gifts. Here's some thoughts. So there's a segment of our culture, right, who protest, keep your laws off my body. Does that even make sense in light of the gospel? How can that, how can that align with the gospel? How, that is such a myopic view. They're missing the big picture. Keep your laws off my body. Well, whose body is it? It belongs to the Holy Spirit. And so does the baby inside of that body. And what about those who protest? You know, hey, uh, porn's, porn's not a big deal. Porn's harmless. It's, you know, it's just, they're just images. They're just pictures. Yeah, well, they're ignoring the truth that another person's body has that body as a good and beautiful gift from the Lord, and it's not intended to be the object of our voyeuristic pleasure. It's not what it's meant for. The body was meant for the Lord. So if you see a beautiful body and you're tempted to look twice or three times or whatever, just, you know, here's what we can do. Instead of like the voyeuristic indulging, the deep dive, pray a prayer of thanksgiving do judo on that attraction, on that allurement. Go vertical with it. Lord, thanks for that beautiful body. Wow. Um, you did a great job. And then move on. <laughs> or and then how about husbands and wives, right? Um, we're just going down a list here and talk, talk about it later and, and work out the implications. But I want to give you some things to think about. Immediately after this section in chapter 6, he starts chapter 7, and Paul in verse 3 tells uh, husbands that the husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights and likewise the wife to her husband. Verse 4, for the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. And those in traditional Christian circles go, that's right. And then they forget the next part of the verse. Likewise, the husband 
does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Wives, you have authority over your husband. Yeah, you heard that in a PCA church. Okay, <laughs> we're going to move on. It's in the Bible. All right. And then what about unmarried Christians? Um, I'm going to leave you with Lauren Winter because uh, she did such a good job. Um, she writes that the unmarried Christian who practices chastity, let me, before I finish this quote, so the unmarried Christian, who is that? Some of you are here are unmarried, you're happy. That's great. Some of you here are unmarried, you're not happy. You want to be married. Um, the typical Christian will spend at least half of his or her life unmarried. So if this doesn't apply to you now, it will, very likely, at some point in your life. The unmarried Christian who practices chastity, recognizes sex is a good gift, but it's, it is not my time right now. The unmarried Christian who practices chastity refrains from sex in order to remember that God desires your person, your body, more than any man or woman ever will. And you are set apart. And you are not your own. And that can be painful and excruciating to live with. But there is hope in the gospel. Two more categories. What about those who don't just have like an uncomfortable relationship with their bodies. What about those who really hate their bodies? Like so much so that you're, you're abusing your body. Maybe it's through food, through overeating, or through anorexia or bulimia. Or maybe it's through abuse, like, like cutting. Maybe it's, you know, other kinds of self-harm or addictions. There's, there's good news for you. The gospel says that your body is beautiful and it's good. Now, that's just a proposition. But here's where you can go with that. You may disagree with that, but here's where you can go with that. Jesus loves your body. So much so that he gave his body. He bore our sins in his body on the tree. So let the body of Jesus be the object of your shame, the object of your guilt, the object of you know, whatever that hatred or that anger or that abuse that you've experienced that you're feeling, pour it out on his body, not yours. That's why you came. To bear that stuff in his body for us. Lastly, how does the fact that your body is not your own speak to this pervasive cultural assumption that's so prevalent, it's everywhere, that our biological body has nothing to tell us about our identity, our true identity, our true self? That completely disregards this fact that I belong to God, that my body is his gift to me, and that it's a biologically male and female body, right? So, there are rare exceptions, but that's what we're dealing with. That's the, the, the hard stuff that God has given to us. It's either male or it's female. So if the person experiences dysphoria, even, even severe dysphoria, which you have to be incredibly sympathetic toward regarding you know, their biological sex, the solution is not for that person to find their identity in the opposite gender, but it really is to find their identity in Jesus.
Now, I'm not saying that you just take the Jesus pill and the dysphoria magically, miraculously goes away altogether. It won't. Maybe in very rare instances, there's this complete transformation. There's no more dysphoria, and it's a, you know, bluebirds and happily ever after forever. But no, most people will continue to struggle. But there are two things that very, very likely will happen. For those that just say, all right, I'm going to embrace this good gift, this physical body that's either male or female, and that's going to be my identity in Christ, two things are likely going to happen. You will discover a growing seed. It may be a seed, but it will grow of joy. Joy in resting and having the question answered, this question of gender settled. Your dysphoria will decrease as you as you rest in Christ and as you're, you, you derive comfort from the fact that your body is not a curse to be endured, this thing that's designed to punish you, but instead it really is intended to be a blessing, to bless you and to bless others. You will find that seed of joy grow. And you will find, yes, that remaining dysphoria, whatever it is, it is don't buy the other lie that, that every human being it, it, are, um, you know, deserves this complete and unadulterated happiness on, on earth. No, Jesus promised us a cross. This is your cross. Just like every other disciple has a cross. Every single follower of Jesus in some way, shape, or form is called to suffer. We do have to suffer. All of us have this cross to bear with our bodies, especially in this corporate calling to sexual purity and beauty. Our bodies are gifts uh, to us, no matter how hard the struggle is, and we have to remember the resurrection. That's, that's going to keep our eyes upward rather than inward and, and you know, depressed and sad. So this day is coming when our bodies will no longer be a source of, of shame, of sickness, of guilt or, or abuse, but instead that day is going to transform our bodies and they will become like Jesus' body, the source of life and blessing and glory forever. That's the doctrine of the body. You're not your own. Let's pray. Lord, we pray that you would help us to embrace our bodies and receive our bodies as you intended uh, gifts, good and glorious gifts. Uh, but we're well aware of our address, how we live south of heaven, and our bodies are subject to the fall and to brokenness, to abuse, to sin, to sickness, even death. And we thank you that you came and you took on a body just like ours so that you might reverse that curse, so that you might give us a hope and a future, so that you might teach us what it means to use our bodies and receive our bodies as gifts and as blessings to bless others. We pray that you'd give us the grace and the strength to live in sexual purity and sexual beauty, and that you would forgive us for the places where we, we give in to sexual immorality, and that we would use our bodies in all the other ways, that, that all the other implications that you intend to, uh, for us so that people would see that you are good, that you make good things, and that you are restoring and making all things new. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.